Welcome to the Disco Posse Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for the GC on demand, then you found the freshly rebranded Disco Posse Podcast. Go to discopossepodcast.com for details. everyone to the Disco Posse podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host today. Don't forget to keep following along. You can go to discopossepodcast.com, get show notes, links, and more. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the GC On Demand podcast. Uh, my name is Eric Wright, and I'm otherwise known as at Disco Posse on Twitter, and you can find me as uh, Disco Posse here in the uh, Green Circle community and pretty much everywhere else online. Today, I'm really pleased and honored to welcome a guest on the podcast, uh, someone who I've watched avidly you know, over the years. And if you don't already know him, you're going to want to learn a lot more about him uh, starting today. Today, I get to welcome someone who I would call sort of technology leader, a speaker, author, and most importantly, a cyclist, uh, Andy Mann. So Andy, do you want to introduce yourself to everyone and let us know where we can kind of find you online? Absolutely. Hey, Eric, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. It's exciting. Yeah, cycling season is just almost upon us as well. Um, <laughs> That's the good One stuff. of the most exciting things of the year. Um, so my name's Andy Mann. Yeah, I'm Andy Mann on Twitter, A-N-D-I-M-A-N-N. And frankly, if you Google Andy Mann, you'll, you'll find a bunch of stuff, uh, blogs, various uh, uh, you know, vidcasts and other things that I do. Currently, I am at Splunk, where I'm working as their chief technology advocate. So I'm out there so talking to the world about what we do, but also advocating for my customers so that we do a better job for them. And I love that that idea. You know, advocacy uh, is such an important part of it that it was kind of you know, no one necessarily saw the value in it. But you know, I've watched the work you've done over the years throughout you know your various points in your career and and other folks like yourself who've been really outward and it was inspirational to me you know to kind of build my path around a lot of the cool stuff that that you've done you know talk oh, about author right, yeah. you've got you know you've got a lot of that under your belt so you're author a co-author of visible ops and you know you if you go to devops.com i can find tons of stuff uh you know What's uh, what sort of triggered the writing bug for you, and and what other good spots are where we can we can find some of your writing material? Yeah, well, it's it's, it's odd. Uh, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, it turns out that I was actually really good at computers, and so that's what I ended up doing as a job. And now I'm back to where I wanted to be originally. Um, I, in actual fact, my very first degree was in English literature, not even computer science. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's where the writing came from. And it's something that over time, as I learned more about technology, I wanted to share and, and help people understand different ideas. And a lot of the writing I have done in the past, especially in blogs, has been to counter ideas that I've read that have sort of riled me up. So it was really just a case of having the passion having the ideas and, and just having a desperate need to put them down on paper. So I've written for I've written two books of my own, the IT 
the visible ops uh, from virtualization to private cloud. Uh, I've written the innovative CIO, which is a full-form book for IT leaders to understand how they can drive business innovation from a technology standpoint. Um, I've contributed to a couple of other books. Uh, yes, DevOps.com is one place I write uh, on the Syscon properties, so Cloud Expo, uh, DevOps Summit uh, magazine. Sometimes I even appear in things like Information Week. So um, wherever I can get my message out, whoever wants to read me, whoever wants to publish me, I'm there. That's great, and and I love the. I mean, I love the message, and what I really always key in on is throughout the growth of your you know career and and just various places you've landed, the message has stayed consistent, and I think that's what's cool. You know, your your vision kind of has always been there, and it's it's nice to see it getting executed through various ways. And uh, you know, how did you how did you start thinking about you know, we kind of talk about it as the the disintegration of IT. I think that was the best way that you, you when we talked about preparing for this, you know, and that was a great description of it. You know, the disintegration of IT and the idea of, of going, you know, the crossing of, of, of different silos and, and architectures. And, and, and that's a, it's an interesting avenue. And people are just starting to become more aware of it. They've tagged some labels on it that we'll talk about. But, like, how did you get started to see that there was a problem there? Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting. I mean, I started to see it mainly with my customers. You know, I worked I work with a lot of large enterprises mo mainly. Um, you know, increasingly, I'm working with a variety of businesses. But you know, traditionally, historically, I've worked with a lot of large enterprises, government organisations, these sorts of things, and they've always been sort of a little bit disintegrated. Um, I started my career in sort of monolithic mainframe environments many years ago. But that's, that's very much ancient history. You go to any large organization now, and you see this as a real problem. I've been trying to solve this problem for people for a long time. Automation is a theme that has run through my entire career. And automation solves, you know, in a lot of ways, well, many problems, but two real problems. One is about speed, but the other is about volume. And part of the, the, what I've done with automation over my career is use it to solve the volume problem for my customers by connecting lots of different pieces, by having you know, monitoring tools go out and collect information from hundreds or thousands of servers at a time, by having your know, process automation tool and go and uh, work on you know, configure, reconfigure, uh, reload software on hundreds or thousands of servers at a time. Uh, these sorts of volume issues. And then it started to, I mean, it started to get sort of crazy with uh, consumerization and mobile. And that's sort of when I started to really think about this concept. When we started to do about, started to work on mobile development, and I started to see how, you know, developing for iOS, developing for Android was not just developing for two operating systems, developing for about 50 different hardware platforms, um, and that then expanded obviously with cloud, with cloud services, with the availability of multiple cloud services, and the imperative to adopt cloud in a granular way so that you are outsourcing those things that you aren't good at. And this is very much a very strong part of my belief is that you know, focus on your core competency, do what you're really good at, and get cloud services to do the rest. Then I got heavily involved in things like APIs, and most recently in things like containers and microservices and unit kernels. And at every step along the way, it's disintegrating IT more and more. Every new technology creates more and more boundaries. And in, in IT, we don't get rid of anything. 
I, st- I know people, I know, literally know people, still running burrows. I talked to someone yesterday who was running OS2. Do you remember OS2? I, I don't even know if, you're, <laughs> if, if your listeners would even remember it. Um, and so, you know, we never get rid of anything. We just add new stuff, and this creates this highly fragmented, disintegrated, balkanized environment. And that's a real problem when it comes to things like management, security, compliance, visibility. Um, so yeah, it's sort of my my hot button at the moment. I'm seeing it over and over and thinking, this is a real problem. We've got to do something about this. Now, we've got two pieces that come along with that. And this always feeds into the greater story. There's technology and there's people, you know, and I, PPT, like people process technology, of course, is a general methodology uh-huh. and there's a lot of practice wrapped around that, which has, you know, been renamed and rebranded under different things. But, you know, what, when did you realize, where, what, what do you see as the biggest, you know, holdback to a lot of this change? Is, is technology still, you know, a, a reason why things slow down or do you find that the people aspect is more significant you know what's the what's the waiting on 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 that side yeah it's a great question you know normally and this is something i say all the time uh technology is easy people are hard and in <laughs> my past research and i've been an analyst before as you know uh, and in research i always seem to find that it was the cultural and people issues which would hold hold organizations back when I first started doing research into virtualization and then later into cloud, the technology was not that revolutionary. You know, virtualization was invented in 1960-something. Uh, cloud computing is you know, in some ways old, but also in some ways new. Uh, but it's also not fundamentally a difficult technology. It's just a different paradigm. But the people issues were always holding back. You know, Trust issues and being able to do things different ways and you know, crystallization of, of process. But with this balkanization thing, with this fragmentation of IT, I actually think it's a technology issue. I mean, ultimately, it always comes back to people. Why are you choosing these technologies? Why are you still running them? Why haven't you made the decision to get rid of it, uh, to consolidate, to standardize? Um, you know, those are always people issues, ultimately. Uh, well, at least until Skynet you know, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> starts to make its own decisions. Um, but I think this one's actually a technology issue. We've got too much technology. We're not rationalizing it. We're not consolidating it. Um, and so I, I, I suspect that we're going to have to face some technology solutions to this. Um, ultimately, it all comes back to people. But this time, I think it's a technology problem. It, one thing that I always enjoy, too, is you know, you look at how to how do we solve each technological problem, and quite often the solution is like, well, let's let's build a, a technology that will integrate with it, and you know, like the old joke of, you know, I had a problem and I used regex to fix it, and now I have two problems. <laughs> that's that's what you end up with, and I think there was an XKCD that talked about standards, you know, and it said like we've we've got this, you know, we've got a standard, you know, all these different standards. So what we need to do is we need to create a unified standard. So we have 16 standards and this, and then the next frame is like, well, now we have 17 standards. Like there's, <laughs> we never actually shed historical stuff and we tend to try and layer on top of it. And I mean, to a degree, I think, uh, you know, the software defined trends allow us to do that, right? And it's, it's maybe let us be a bit more of a pack rat than we should be. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's also, I think, uh, to a degree, it's a lack of discipline. Um, and that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. There's, we've gone through these periods where IT has been this department of no, right? Going, no, you can't do this. No, you can't adopt new devices. No, you can't have a server on your floor. Um, and I, a business always rejects that. Um, it's like the organism, you know, it's the host just rejecting a virus. It's yeah, like, no, yeah. I need to do business. I'm not going to let that happen. And we ended up with business making decisions and pulling in, uh, you know, originally our distributed systems and putting them into the accounting rooms and the marketing rooms got desktop publishing and more recently bring your own device and I'm going to use whatever mobile device I want. And that's, you know, this is actually a really good thing because it creates opportunities to do business in new ways to work with your customers, to engage with customers in the ways that they want to engage with you. And so it's really good, but there's a certain level of discipline I think that we need to have within IT to say, you know what, no, we can't proliferate these different software systems. No, we can't use seven different cloud services that do the same thing. Just because one has a specific feature you want and the another one has a specific feature you want, we're losing money, we're doubling up on costs, we're doubling up on skills. You know, there's some point where you have to draw a line and go, you know what, we need the discipline to say, no, we're going to standardize on one cloud service. Save money, save time, save skills, and all sorts of things, but also reduce that complexity. Um, there's also the discipline, I think, to go back and revisit stuff. Hey, Eric, have you ever not turned off a server because you're scared it won't come back on? Oh, <laughs> more, more times than you, you, I could count. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right? Um, have, you, have, you, have, have you ever had the sort of situation where you haven't turned off a server because you just don't know what it does? Um, yeah. There's, there's that, another XKCD, actually, um, speaking of that, where I think it's um, – uh, so the first frame is something like, I've, I've, lost, I've lost a server. They go, oh, well, you know, why don't you try pinging it and see if you, you know, reboot it and say, no, no, you don't understand. I can ping it. I just don't know where it is. <laughs> um, and in actual fact, I've heard about stories where servers have been uh, literally walled up in the wall when they reconfigured a data center room because no one knew what that box did. So there's this sort of lack of discipline to even understand what we're currently doing and find ways to you know, rationalize that one server that's in the corner of the data center that I, I know accounting stood that up a few years back, I just don't know what for, and the person who asked for it is no longer here. So I'm just going to leave it and let it run. You know, there's a, there's a, a lack of will to go and fix the, the technical debt of facilities and operations, not just technical debt in terms of programming and applications. So, yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a, I think it's a tough problem. I don't know what the solution is yet. I'm still exploring it, but I really do think it's a problem. I think to to pick a, off of that story, you know, the idea of, I, I worked in an organization, we had a service that was, you know, we did like a monthly service around handing out statements to customers. And it's a financial services environment, you know, so we had, uh, it was basically display only stuff. Here's your monthly summary. And the whole idea was it was an all hands on deck. Every month we would load these statements, then an emailer would go out to warn people, here you go, your statement's ready. And we would be literally pagers on, developers, ops, everybody's ready to go just in case something went sideways on it. We load it overnight, we make sure it's all done in you know 
And it was all around this criticality of this process and how important it was and that God help us, we can never have an outage during this time. And then when they actually put analytics into place on the system, we found out that, in fact, the busiest day of the month on that system was five days before the statements came out, because the statements came out after the first of the month as a summary. And in fact, it's a live portfolio that people had access to continuously every day. So people would go on the 29th and the 30th of the month, check their portfolio, and then on the 5th or 6th or 7th, they would receive a PDF you know, kind of copy of what they'd already seen. So we'd had this this idea that that was the most important day was the day they got the printed version, but then nobody cared by then because I mean anything could have <laughs> happened, and so we were we only way we could capture that learning was with analytics, and so how does how does that come into play for you like how how important is bringing analytics into it to drive these technology and people decisions? Yeah, I mean. I I've always been a bit of a data geek, you know. It's one of the things when I when I turned to the analyst side of the world, um, I was very keen to come out with uh, you know information and advice based on data. And I still work that way. I still want to see you know in God we trust. All others bring data, right? Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and so I mean that's where analytics come from. And the better you get at analyzing and understanding the information that you have in your organization the better you'll be able to make decisions. You know, um, I know at Splunk we talk about the idea that the machines are talking if only you would listen. And that's where you know, the data that we're getting out of machines is really quite phenomenal now more than ever. This is perhaps one of the upsides of this fragmentation of IT. And it's, it's more to do with the volume of devices and applications and systems that we're using. So now with analytics, you can actually get really close to not just your customer, but also your partners and your employees. You can use analytics to understand what people are doing, when they're doing it, why they're doing it. You know, you come back to that, <laughs> I love that example with the, the, the statements because that's the sort of thing that's so easy to fall into the, the, the feeling that something is important. I feel that this is important. My worldview tells me that this is important. But in actual fact, you're just looking at the wrong things. Yeah. And that's where you know, a good set of analytics, I think, really makes a difference. You get to look at everything. As a, as a human, it's really hard to look at a broad range of data. You know, psychological theory says that the, the, the ideal number of items that we can remember, that we can sort of process at any one time, is seven plus or minus two. So, and just by the way, this is one of the reasons why phone numbers tend to be somewhere between seven and nine digits, most, of, most countries in the world, because that's the sort of number you can hold in your head. So if you're trying to manage hundreds of servers, thousands of servers, hundreds, you know, tens of thousands of employees, hundreds of thousands or millions of customers, and potentially billions of individual interactions, then as human beings, we have absolutely no way of doing that. We cannot. So we end up with that sort of blind men touching an elephant kind of scenario. Right. You know, one man says, uh, one, you know, one man says, I have a snake because he happens to be holding the trunk. Yeah. The other one says, you know, I'm, I'm touching a wall because he's touching the side of the elephant. No one actually knows the whole elephant. Um, with analytics, you can know the whole elephant. Um, and that, I think, can be a way of grabbing hold of this complexity of being able to have a diverse environment and still be able to get insight into that environment 
and have a vast customer base, but still be able to get even personal insights into what your customers are doing and how they're engaging with you. And once you start to get that closeness to your customer, you can really start to be agile and innovative with your business and get better outputs. And that, so yeah, analytics for me is a very exciting. We're at a point now with systems and technologies and inputs where I think analytics is really becoming an exciting area for IT leaders to, to really get close to customers and partners and employees. Now, I also, I want people to move very rapidly to the next piece because I fear there's this gap that we get stuck in, which is what they call, you know, being data rich and information poor. And and quite often we see a lot of people, they they do the data collection, but they don't use a systems approach to consume and process that data. Is is that something that you've seen folks like they're like, oh great, we've got we've got more and more data coming in. Now what? <laughs> right? How how do you <laughs> how do you get them to kind of push back to that next step? Because it would be very easy for us to get locked into the idea of that we're still using people. And you, like you talked about it, it, we cannot do this at human scale, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's really, that's a really perceptive uh, question because a lot of people will think that because they've got lots of data, they have lots of information. And it's something I did a, a long time ago just for, just for giggles is I actually wrote up a taxonomy, and I, I must find it someday, that actually looked at the difference between the ideas of things like information and data. Data is actually fundamentally useless. Right. Uh, data doesn't do anything for you. It's just a bunch of bits and bytes, ones and zeros on a hard drive or, or, or a tape or a solid state somewhere. It doesn't really mean anything. Information is what you're seeking. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of people think, oh, well, I've collected all this data, and I'm storing it, I've got it, I can use it. I can, I can data mine, so I'm good. It's like, no, you're not good until you actually do that data mining, until you actually find meaning. And that was another, another element of my taxonomy. Data, information, meaning. You know, these are, you know, even information is not necessarily that helpful until you, until you can derive meaning from it. Um, so yeah, a lot, of, a lot of early stage efforts are uh, gonna face, you know, to an extent, a, a variation of the innovator's dilemma. They're going to be in a position where they've got a lot of data and they spend a lot of money to collect that data and to store that data. They may be even doing some low-level, not particularly interesting processing of that data. And they get to that point, there may be you know, six, 12 months down the line of a, data pro, of, a, of a data mining project, of an analytics project, but they're not getting the benefits they expect because they really haven't gone far enough, they haven't gone deep enough, they haven't managed to apply the right levels of analytics to the information that they're collecting. And so they're not getting the results. I think, oh, well, my analytics project's failed. But in actual fact, it just hasn't gone far enough. So yeah, there's, there's that temptation to think that because you've got data, you've got information. And that's a very scary uh, trap to fall into. One of the things that uh, uh, I think just, just a funny aside I've just noticed, and, and it's my proud moment, all of our American audience is going to cringe every time because they realize that we both say project and process. And it's, <laughs> I, it's, it's a proud moment for me that I, I can share my, my strange Canadian intonations uh, <laughs> with someone else. I, 
as an aside, I always enjoy uh, going to Canada. It's an easy trip, lovely people, and I get to spell things properly. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about aside, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us down a fun road. You sat at CA World and you got to interview Sir Richard Branson, which was really cool to watch. Uh, what was what was that experience like? What was uh, what was it like to to see somebody who probably you see as as a real interesting inspiration? You know that was bizarrely comfortable. I was not expecting it. Um, Sir Richard Branson, and literally, I, I you know, I'm calling him Sir Richard Branson. Sir Branson. And he, and he turns around and goes, oh, call me Richard. Yeah, <laughs> super personable guy. Um, you know, and we talked, I'd actually uh, not met him, but seen him across a crowded restaurant in Australia when he launched his Australian airline, Virgin Blue. Um, and I talked to him about how, you know, oh, I'd seen you there and that was great and stuff. Um, you know, and, and he goes, oh, yeah, I remember that night. That's a great restaurant. Yeah. Really friendly, personable guy. Um, and you may be able to still even see the video of him presenting in front of the large audience on that day. Um, and he's out there, he's bouncing around the stage. He's the, 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 the Sir Richard Branson you know, the raconteur, the brash, big, big, toothy grin, the loud, funny guy. But got, when I got him on stage after everyone had piled out of that room, there were something like four or 5,000 people in the room in the first run, and then they piled out. And he was quiet and reserved and considered and almost a different person. Fascinating guy, really interesting, very friendly. And yeah, I think of him um, as one of the consummate innovators. You know, I, when I wrote my book, The Innovative CIO, I looked very closely at some of the things he'd done and found out that he's failed quite a lot. And that's actually one of the questions I ask him in that interview is, you know, tell, talk to me about failure. Because, you know, as we've talked about before, Failure is an important part of innovation. If you're not prepared to fail, then you don't try things out, and trying things out is so critical when you try to innovate. And that's where Richard Branson, I think, has been incredibly successful, is trying things out and bouncing back from them. So not many people realize that he, he had a cola line. He tried to compete with Coke and Pepsi, <laughs> launched it in New York City of all places. Um, it was an utter failure, but that's okay. He tried it. Um, he once launched a, a line and I think a set of stores, uh, shop fronts, for bridal wear uh, with the unfortunate name of Virgin Brides. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Um, uh, which, which is just so fitting with Richard Branson. He's such a cheeky guy. Um, but, you know, and again, that didn't really succeed. But he's okay. He learns from that. And we talked about how you, you know, failure is okay. You don't aim to fail. And there's a lot of conversation about, yeah, you should, you should try and fail more. It's like, no, 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 you, you should try and succeed more, but not worry so much if you fail. Um, and we talked a little bit about the ideas of failing fast and failing small and being prepared to take on risk. If you want to be an innovator, you have to have a level of appetite for risk. And so, yeah, that interview for me was, I mean, it was a personal highlight of my career so far. There's no doubt about that. It's a a fascinating opportunity that I had, uh, and I'm very privileged to have been able to connect with him. Um, but also on a professional basis, I learned some real interesting stuff about innovation, about trying things, about a, how, how do you find the right people uh, to join your crew? How do you let them be successful? Um, 
a really, really fascinating guy, and I, I still uh, follow him avidly with all of his ventures. Absolutely. Well, we're at a fun spot here, Andy. Uh, we've got so much stuff we're going to cover. We're actually going to break out to the folks who are listening. This is the start of uh, another piece. So we're going to we're going to wind down this. This has been great, and I'm going to going to start to lead us into a, a fun new conversation. And uh, we'll we'll just tease everybody that they've got to hang on till the next batch, but they're going to hear. We're going to talk about DevOps. This is the the ever elusive topic. So uh, for those uh, who are listening, just hang tight and you're going to hear uh, the next download. And we're going to have part two here with Andy Mann. And we're going to talk about uh, DevOps, DevOps culture, uh, embracing it, failing at it, and, and much, much more. Fantastic. Thanks, Eric. We'll come back in the next episode. There we go.